Uh, hi everyone, my name is Meng and I'm going to be the mission pastor at EV next year. But today, we'll be looking at Psalm 2 and unpacking that together. Life is full of so many decisions. What do I wear? What do I eat? How do I get into work? Should I go into work? Who do I make friends with? Who do I marry? Do I even get married? Even though some of these decisions seem small, insignificant, they can dramatically affect our lives. Before Angela and I started dating, I had known her for a good three years. Never really thought of her as more than just of another friend at church. But one day, I was asked to help out at a marriage conference church was running. And I didn't think much of it at the time. It was like being asked out to help with any other thing church was running. But little did I know, and I know it's ironic, a marriage conference that Angela agreed to help run the back end as well. Uh, and it was getting to spend that time with Angela, serving with her in that way, that my thoughts and feelings began to change, began to lead to a lifelong promise we made to one another. For some of us, Christianity is one of those small, inconspicuous decisions we make. It doesn't have much bearing in our life, and it's an optional extra. I know that's what I used to think. But what we read today in Psalm 2 is that to think this way would be to miss the most profound question for our lives. Understanding Psalm 2 and what it really means for you and me would change the way you look at everything. Its big question is this. Am I with God or against God? Am I trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ or am I trusting in myself? At first, we kind of expect the Bible to say that. It's a religious book, right? It wants me to be religious. But that's not it. It's saying that your answer to this question, are you with God or against God, is the most profound and important question you will ever face in your life. It'll determine far more than what clothes you wear, what job you do, who you marry. It'll determine where you spend eternity. And it's a question for everyone, even those who seem like they're in charge, who think they're least in need of God. So let's jump right in. Have a look with me at the first section, verse 1 to 3. Let's read it together. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Psalm 2 begins by revealing a global rebellion. It puts the spotlight on the major players in this world. The nations, the rulers, the people, the kings of the earth. And it asks, why? People have been resisting God since the beginning of creation. Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God. The Egyptian pharaoh resists God. Babylonian kings come and overthrow the people of God. Roman emperors persecute faithful believers. The chairman of China tells people there is no God. And here in New Zealand, Faith is just an optional extra. The world is and always has been full of people trying to be God and live in opposition to God. Psalm 2 presents a familiar world to us, but it gives us the perspective of God who sees everything. And the reality is, the world hates God. There's an international plot going on, global rebellion against God. And this isn't just some temporary local hatred, but it's the sustained spiritual hostility of every race in every age. 
You know, a, a simple Google search reveals to us plenty of hatred towards God in every language of the world. It's no secret. Why is that? Why do people of all cultures, of all generations, hate God? Whether that's politely by ignoring Him or rudely by condemning Him. Why do people live in opposition to God and His chosen King? Back then, King David, and today, Jesus. Why? The psalmist asks. Well, listen to the reason given to us in verse 3. They say, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. In other words, people see God as a tyrant and life under his king as slavery. That's why people hate God. They think to be under God's rule is to be a slave, chained and shackled. And is this not true? That people in our offices, our streets, our friends, those who reject our invitations to church or don't want to get into a conversation about God or Jesus, don't they say, oh, I'm all right, I'm happy with my life as it is. And that may be your view today, that God is like a, like a wet blanket. He wants me to live in a way I don't want to live. That's the way we'd have many of my friends and even family think. God will make my life boring or dull, they say. I'm happy with my life, thank you very much. See, this isn't just some theory. This is divine perspective. Through all the fluff and excuses, we're told why the world around us is constantly pushing God out of the picture. It's because people think following God will be a constraint, restrictive, it'll cramp their freedom. Now, those of us who are Christian, we know that coming to Jesus brings a glorious freedom from sin, guilt, confusion, and fear. But people don't. And this makes us wonder, what are we trying to explain to those around us? Are we spending our efforts on the wrong things? Maybe trying to argue how Christianity matches up with the latest scientific theory? Or trying to explain some deep philosophical conundrum? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned with some of these things, but here in Psalm 2, we're told that our world is lost, that those who have not seen the importance of who Jesus is don't realize the incredible freedom we have in Him, that life under God is to live rightly and according to our good purpose. We were made for God by God. Perhaps that's what we need to be trying to explain more. But... It's not all just ignorant opposition to God. Sometimes, or very often, it's sinister opposition as well. We need to keep both error and evil in mind. In Acts chapter 4, the early Christians used this first section of Psalm 2 in their prayers. In the face of opposition, Psalm 2 was a reminder of the hostility God and His chosen King have always faced. All this means that Hostility towards God and His King Jesus, it's, it's inevitable. So don't be surprised when you face some hostility. Don't be surprised when you discover at work or in your local community or at schools when things innocently Christian are shut down or condemned. Don't be surprised if, if things like carols in the park or, or even praying for your friends are banned. Don't be surprised if Christianity is sidelined if the world doesn't see meeting together as important. 
This sort of thing has been happening and going on for thousands of years. It's normal. Now, the thing to realize is that the problem isn't with us, but with God and His chosen King. And this helps us to remember that the opposition we face is not because we're wrong, but because people think God's a tyrant. So don't change your message. In the face of opposition or rejection, there's a real temptation for us to want to change what the Bible says, for us to want to make it more palatable to the world. But we can't. People have always rebelled against God, so don't panic when that happens. It's normal. There's nothing wrong with the message. So, that's the first thing. What's going on in our world? Global rebellion against God and against His King. Now, the foolishness of this rebellion is explained in the next section. Verse 4 and 6, a divine response. Have a look with me from verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. How foolish was it when Pharaoh thought he could just defy the Lord Almighty and his servant Moses? Warning after warning, plague after plague, and yet he stubbornly digs deep and resists God's word. So absurd were the Canaanites who thought they could defeat the Lord of heaven and earth under Joshua. Defeat after defeat, yet the Canaanites would not stop. What about Goliath and the Philistines? Through all their boasting, a boy with a stone takes him out because God was with him. You see, the hostility of the nations and rulers of the world simply looks, looks insane when you see it from the perspective of God. To us down here, they can all seem so impressive, so powerful. But to God, it's laughable. It's ridiculous. But this, this isn't a laughing matter. It's tragic. And so God rebukes them. He terrifies them saying, you're no king. I've already chosen my king. So stop pretending and bow down. Some of you will know this story. But when I was younger, just a wee boy, just a small boy, I used to hang out at my dad's accounting firm and sit in his big chair. He was the big boss and I wanted to be like him. I even picked my first email address to be bigbossming at hotmail.com. Don't spam me, I still have it for safekeeping, a little appreciation token. But one day after school, as I was sitting in my dad's chair, the phone started to ring. Looked around, no one was picking up, so I thought I would. Hello, I said. Then the guy on the phone asks, can I please speak to Mr. Yong? I thought to myself, Mr. Yong? I'm technically Mr. Yong. So I reply, yes, speaking. There was a slight pause from the man, but then he started speaking really fast in Mandarin Chinese. Now, I can't speak Mandarin fluently, so I freaked out and quickly ran to get my dad shortly after. Before this phone call, the skies were the limit for me. I was sitting in the big boss chair at the big boss desk. Even my dad's employees had to treat me nicely. I felt like I called the shots. But when I was found out, 
my plane started to crash. I was shown to be the fraud I really was. And it's the same with us here in Psalm 2. We think life's all good. We think we can keep calling the shots, pretending to be the big boss of our lives. That is, until the real boss shows up. God and His King Jesus. Are you pretending to be the king of your life? Where in your life are you pretending to be God? Whether it's polite ignorance or deliberate hostility? You know, I find I do this the most when I'm pointing the finger. I like complaining about the leaders in my life, complaining that they're not doing a good job. You know, our school teachers, our government leaders, our parents, our employers. I haven't walked in their shoes, yet I still try to cut them down, criticize them. In my youthful arrogance, just like when I was a small boy, I think I'm the boss. A part of us does this whenever we criticize that part of us that likes to think we know what's best. We love to be the boss of our own lives. We love to call the shots. But in the end, we're all just pretenders before God. So where are you doing this? I ask this because we need to look at ourselves and realize we're not God. We're not the boss. God's king is already enthroned on high. And, our and in our blindness, God's kindly giving us a warning shot. In Hebrews 1, we're told that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And after he provided purification for sins through his death on the cross, he rose again, ascended and sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. See, when God says here in Psalm 2 verse 6, he's installed his king already, what he's saying is, it's all over. The king is enthroned. It's a done deal. Even when Psalm 2 was written, thousands of years before Jesus, God's plans are so certain that it can be spoken of as finished. Pointing first to David, a pale reflection of the king, to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And so for those of us who trust in Jesus, put their confidence in God, you don't need to be frightened. Don't be scared when someone mocks your faith. Don't be discouraged by some hatred on social media because it's too late. Our King is enthroned in heaven. You know, things might feel horrific, might feel out of control. We think of times like Nazi Germany, Stalin, many moments in history look bad, but God's in control. He might let human wickedness reign for a time, letting us see the consequences of rejecting Him and giving us time to recognize He's God before it's too late. Absolutely, it's hard when we are in it, but don't lose sight of this big picture. God's in control. These are just some of the times this psalm would have been sung to remind people that God's in control. He's victorious. Now, you might be someone here and you haven't yet put your trust in King Jesus. Maybe you have some questions you're pondering. What would you want from God before you follow Him? Would you want all of His ways to make sense to you? Would you wait to make sure all His morals lined up with yours? Would you need to be able to understand everything that He does? 
I'm not saying to stop asking these kind of questions, but we need to realize that if God is God, then he doesn't answer to us. We're not the top dogs here. There comes a point where we need to realize who's the boss, who's God, and who are we before him. No matter how much we do learn about God, it's still going to take trust to follow him. And there's a reason why what God demands of us above all else is faith, trust. There's this great chasm between us and God, but God has done so much to bridge that chasm. We only need to look to his son, Jesus. So turn to him before it's too late. This all brings us to the third section of the psalm, verse 7, and nine, seven to 9. Let's read it together. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me. You're my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Just look at the promises expressed here. What an amazing position for any king. At his asking, his whim, this king is given authority and power over the nations, over the whole earth, and his authority will be matched by his power. An iron scepter. Not a pretty one, a strong one. See, because Jesus is the son, he's not just the king, he's also the heir. He inherits everything. The whole lot is his. And it's, it's not like Turkey belongs to Muhammad and Sri Lanka belongs to Buddha, and America belongs to Christ. No, no. The whole world belongs to Jesus. See, when Jesus died, rose to life forever, and ascended into heaven, he's bringing about his reign, this reign we see in Psalm 2, in two steps. Stage one is right now. We're living in it through the gospel. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth is given to him. Therefore, what? What does he say next? You know, we might expect him to say, now's the time for me to smash my enemies, dash them to little pieces like pottery. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, go, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, before coming to crush his enemies, the king Jesus exercises his authority through the gospel, through the message that Jesus' own death turns aside God's wrath and offers the free gift of forgiveness. See, he's calling people to come forward, to accept this gift and to move from being in rebellion against God to being at peace with him. And this is what we're on about as Jesus' church. Just like the stories we've heard today, where disciples aren't about making disciples of Jesus. And we love doing that because how great is it to have a king who, instead of just crushing his enemies, he first offers grace, mercy, forgiveness, hope. While we were still enemies of God, part of the global rebellion, Jesus came and was crushed for us. He died so we didn't have to. This is what matters now. Because there comes a point where he'll be done with stage one and he'll launch stage two, 
where he'll come in absolute power and destroy his enemies. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 2, we're told he will rule with them, he'll rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery, just like Psalm 2 verse 9 says. And it's a pretty strong image. What will happen if I drop this? There's no, no carpet down here, no soft surface. If I drop this, it'll be destroyed in an instant. It's not going to be hard for Jesus. There won't be a chance to run or respond there. See, at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 19, we get a picture of this. He's described as this white rider, his eyes like a blazing fire. The armies of heaven are following him. And as he strikes down the nations, just like Psalm 2 here, it says he will rule them with an iron scepter. Psalm 2 is speaking of this day when Jesus comes with destructive power. It'll be a terrifying day. And so we can't be silent about this. Now's the time to be telling people that it doesn't have to end this way. As we think about the global rebellion Psalm 2 reveals to us, and this picture of the end here, at the moment, one of our current temptations is to wonder, is our government banning gatherings because they reject God and His Word? The answer is yes and no. No in that the current rules apply to all gatherings, not singling out Christians and persecuting them. All people are being treated the same here. The government made a point of it and are trying to act out of what they see as good and helpful from a health perspective. They care about human life. But it's also yes. Yes, in that they're diminishing the importance of gathering together, the importance and freedom of moral conscience. They think, like every other authority in history, they can run the world in their own wisdom without reference to God. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 30, anyone not for me is against me. So, two responses to the government we tend to fall into. On one side, we, we demonize everything they do. But on the other side, we might miss that until Jesus comes back, even the good governments try to do, when it isn't in line with God's will and His word, it's rebellion against God. Whichever side you tend to be on, don't fall into the trap of making an idol of the government, thinking that a good government will change the world. It won't. Not until Jesus returns. We need to recognize that God is in control. The kings and powers of this world will have to answer before God. And, and that's a great comfort, isn't it? And it's a great reminder for what we ought to be spending our time doing pointing people to the very reality Psalm 2 shows us before it's too late. Getting your view of God right is the most important thing we can do. This doesn't mean we don't try to change the government decisions that we can on the way through. It's just that this task isn't primary for us. It'll never be perfect. It'll always be broken until Jesus returns. Psalm 2 concludes in the final section, verse 10 to 12. Be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear and trembling. You know, in this world, there are many irrational fears. Fears that we take a little too far and it becomes absurd. 
For me, that, that's heights. I get scared while tramping because I'm afraid of dying by some gust of wind and me flying off the edge to my doom. My friends often joke about the ridiculous scenarios I end up coming up with. There are many irrational fears in our world, but God, He's not one of them. It's entirely wise, entirely rational to fear God. Now, Psalm 2 isn't trying to scare people into trusting God. It's ultimately meant to be a word of comfort. For those of us who do trust in God, put their hope in God and His King Jesus, we're meant to find comfort in these words. If we step back and look at the picture Psalm 2 is painting, the greatness of the King on the throne, the craziness of the fighting against His rule and their doom, all this is primarily meant to be a comfort, a comfort to the believers who are given the words of this song. We've seen today in the stories and interviews, God is still at work. The gospel is still going out. He's bringing people to himself, even amidst COVID, sickness, death, and stubborn hearts. Whatever hostility or mistreatment you're receiving or feeling because of your faith in Christ, find comfort knowing he's sitting on the throne right now and he sees all of it. But secondly, out of God's kindness, this psalm serves as a warning, a warning to take seriously and a warning to tell others. Kiss the Son and take refuge in Him. That is, bow down at the feet of Jesus and surrender towards Him. Plead for mercy because He is merciful. But this will not always be the case. A day is coming where He will come in wrath. And when that happens, Take refuge in Him. Take refuge in the Son because nothing else will save you from His wrath. Psalm 2 puts before us this critical decision. It's a simple question, but it will shape and color everything else we do from here on out. Am I with God or am I opposed to God? Am I trusting in the Lord Jesus or am I trusting in myself? Let's pray that we might respond to this psalm with wisdom. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at this picture of global rebellion, we confess the many times that we have participated in that and come with you and plead for mercy. But we are so thankful that you have given us your son Jesus and he is reigning on the throne and we can find mercy and refuge in him. So as we bow down before him, as we kiss the Son, help us to live lives that honor and glorify Him. Live lives that prioritize the urgency of calling people to come before Him and find mercy and hope. Might that be the priority of our life and might that shape everything we do until He returns. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful, and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.